So I want to start with just thinking about language. And language is an amazing gift. The fact that we can take thoughts that are in our minds and then communicate them into vocal expressions that someone else can understand. And it's an amazing gift from a God who communicates. The God who spoke the world into existence made us in his image and teaches us to speak and gives us language that has meaning in words that actually can accomplish things. And there are so many words, and it's often difficult to figure out what words should I use when? What is the appropriate sentence or the appropriate term for this occasion? And how often do we struggle, as I talk with Alex many times before preparing for his, his testimony, how often do we struggle with trying to find the right words? Not wanting to fumble over our words and wanting to say exactly what we mean to say. Especially when it comes to something important. Like, why should I hire you for this job? Do you know why I pulled you over? How do I look in this outfit? Choose your words carefully. But how much more careful must we be when we choose words to describe the attributes of the true and living God? How often do our frail attempt at communication fall short to the glories of our God? How often are paltry and human phrases attached to the eternal creator, redeemer? And that's why in choosing the title for this series, chose it very carefully. So I want to share that with you to understand why do we call the book of Colossians the excellencies of Christ? First, the word excellent. It means possessing outstanding quality, something that is extraordinary or superior. And we're not using that in the singular as in one thing that is excellent. We're using that in the plural. The excellencies of Christ. He is all things excellent. He is the perfection of all things. But this word also has Another meaning. If you capitalize it, excellency, it is a title. It is given uh, in honor of a superior position. And this is something that Roman Catholic bishops blasphemously apply to themselves, taking on the term your excellency. But we apply it to the one who is in the superior position, the only one who is truly excellent. And who we are only comes from who he is. Because he is all excellencies. He is all things great and awesome. He is the creator and redeemer of all things. We are called to his name for a purpose. This is why we read 1 Peter 2 earlier. On the screen, it's going to be 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So as we get into this book of Colossians, remember that our God is excellent. He is all excellencies combined. And we are his people called to proclaim his excellencies as people who have been brought out of darkness into marvelous light. And so we proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And even that word is chosen specifically. Because there are a lot of names that are attached to the second person of the Trinity. And they all apply, but they all have different significance. Now, if we said the excellencies of Jesus, would that be true? 
Yes. We said the excellencies of the Son, would that be true? Yes. But why Christ? If you look at the book of Colossians, this is the word that Paul repeats more than any. This is the term that Paul applies more than any. Why? Let's walk through these. Jesus. This is the name that was given to Mary and Joseph by the angel. This is the name that was implied to the incarnate Son. This declares his humanity. Son. This declares his deity, who he was throughout eternity, the eternal Son of the eternal Father. Lord. This is his function. He is ruler over all. Prophet, priest, king. These are his offices. But Christ is a title. Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, actually encompasses all of these. The promised Messiah, the promised anointed one of God, the one that the scriptures foretold, be known as the Christ, Jesus Christ. Just to scratch the surface, the promises in Isaiah chapter 7. That the virgin would give birth and you would call his name Emmanuel speaks to his humanity. That in humanity God would dwell with us. Psalm chapter 2, God the Father speaks and says, I have begotten a son. My son, I will make him king. And you kiss and bow to him. Speaks of his deity. Psalm 110 also speaks of his deity, but speaks of his lordship. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. Because that Lord, he is the ruler over all, and he is high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Deuteronomy 18, he is the prophet that would come from among Moses' brothers. He would be the one that God would put his words into his mouth, and you shall listen to him. Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man who stands before the Ancient of Days, who is given glory and power and dominion over all things. These are all talking about the same promised Messiah. Zechariah 9 and 14 speaks of the coming king. He is righteous and he is having salvation. Rejoice, Israel, your king is coming. Not to mention Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, he is redeemer. All these are applied to one. God, man, Lord, king, prophet, priest, redeemer, Jesus Christ. That is why this is called the excellencies of Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, you are excellent in all of your ways. And we don't mean that in a throwaway way. We mean that you are superior. You are sovereign. You are great. You are mighty. You are majestic. You are splendid. You are awesome. We praise you for who you are. And we pray that this time in your book would be glorifying to you, would be uplifting and encouraging to us, and that we would be encouraged by your word, and we would be empowered by who we are in Christ Jesus as a kingdom of priests to declare your excellencies as those who have light speaking to others who are in darkness. And I pray that over these next couple months in this book that you would strengthen your people, that you would convict us of right doctrine, that you would help us to spot error, Help us to love and serve one another, to put off old things, to put on new things, and encourage one another in prayer. Because we are in Christ. And it is in His glorious name that I pray. Amen.
So what I want to do this morning, uh, since we're beginning the book, I want to give you an overview. So we're going to look at the city and the setting, we're going to look at purpose, um, and then we're going to look at the greeting. So since we got our title, now let's look at the city and the setting. Um, there's a map, and it's always tough finding the best map. So this traces, Paul writes to Philemon while imprisoned. Just so you know, while he was in prison, he wrote Philemon, which is an accompanying book to Colossians, also another letter to Laodicea, and sent them. Ignore the other ones. This is kind of speculation. We're pretty sure he was in Rome. So the letter went from Rome, where Paul is imprisoned, and moves all the way into, uh, into Asia, and to into Asia Minor, which goes through Ephesus and into Colossae. This is a long journey. Just give you an idea of where Colossae is. And so Colossae was a city that its heyday was behind it. There's the three cities of Hierapolis, Hierapolis uh, Laodicea, and, and Colossae. So uh, this is a, a picture of the, the mound of Colossae sat on this, on, on this mound and kind of give you an idea of how the city's laid out, but it's largely unexcavated. So we just kind of have a, a layout of, of where the uh, city is. It's in modern-day Turkey, and this is what it looks like today. So how did the gospel get to Colossae? So Paul, as Luke tells us in Acts 19, was preaching in Ephesus for several years. And Paul says, or excuse me, Luke says that the gospel went to all of Asia. And this would include Jews and Greeks and Colossae. And this happened because Paul, working as a tent maker, he would, uh, what happens in, uh, still happens in a lot of these Eastern cultures is they take several hours off in the middle of the day for a long lunch. And in the hottest hours of the day, they would eat and relax, which is a great practice. We should institute that. Um, and so Paul, what he would do was he would go into the, uh, the, the public areas in the halls and he would proclaim the gospel and he would debate. And the main place he would debate in Ephesus is the hall of Tyrannus, full name Oris Rex. You guys will get that later. I, I had to. I, I couldn't resist. So thank you. So in, in the hall of, of Tyrannus, Paul is proclaiming the gospel, and people are coming from all over. And Luke tells us that all of Asia heard the gospel. And so Colossae, being many miles away, heard the gospel. And so Paul, even, and and we're not sure if he traveled there or not. Verse 2-1, some people debate whether he had actually seen them, because in verse 2-1 he says, uh, for all who have not seen me face to face. We don't know if he was there or not. doesn't really matter. What does matter is that Paul knew what was going on in Colossae, and he knew because of Epaphras. And so Epaphras, mentioned in verse 7, who declared the grace of God in truth, chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved brother, fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the saints, in the Spirit. And so Epaphras, who's from there, who's either the one who founded the church, who evangelized it, or at very least supports the church, goes and tells Paul what's going on in Colossae. And so Paul sends Tychicus, uh, chapter 4, tells us that he sends Tychicus with this letter, also two other letters, one to Philemon, one to Laodicea, which we no longer have. And so um, Paul is addressing what's going on in Colossae. But what is going on in Colossae? What type of city was Colossae? So it was a cosmopolitan city, meaning it drew from a lot of cultures. And so it being in the Roman Empire, they had Roman influences. And the Romans were, were uh, consumed with glory. Romans wanted big things. They, they wanted to, to conquer the world. They also had Greek influences. And the Greeks were consumed with wisdom. They always wanted new things. They wanted to understand things that they didn't understand before. But there are also a lot of Jews who came from the dispersion who resettled in Colossae. 
And so they had this moralistic approach of keeping the law. And so you've got pagan influences, and then you've got Jewish religious practices coming together in the city of Colossae. The Colossae was kind of a declining city. Its, its heyday was, was behind it. And so Paul hears a message from Epaphras about what's going on in the city. He hears good things about the people. He says that, I've heard about your, your love. I've heard that the gospel is bearing fruit. But I also hear that you're being too influenced by strange and outside doctrines. So that will get us to the purpose of the book. And before we get to that, I kind of want to walk through uh, the flow of the book. And so one of the things I, I love about a book this small is that you can read it in one sitting, and I encourage you to do that. Um, and many of you who I appreciate said you've been reading Colossians ahead of time. I, and I challenge you, read this book at least once this week. You could easily read it every morning. It would probably take you 20 to 30 minutes. And you have 20 to 30 minutes. You can cut that out of your YouTube budget very easily. So let me, let me go through the, the flow of this book here. So he begins in the beginning with a, a, a greeting, which we're going to get to in a moment, and an encouragement to the church. I've heard about your faith. I've heard about your love. I've heard about the, the, the fruit of, of the gospel. And then he exhorts them with the primacy of Christ. And this from uh, verses 15 to 20, we're going to spend a week there, uh, is probably one of the strongest, or not probably, it is one of the strongest Christological statements. So who Christ is in all of Scripture, the supremacies and excellencies of Christ, who he is and what he's done, that's where he begins his argument. So he starts by encouraging the church, and then he says, this is who Christ is. Everything else I'm going to tell you from here on out is because of what I say right here, because of who Christ is. And then you will see that as he moves on to the meat of the argument in, in chapter 2, so the, the, the end of chapter 1, he tells them his purpose. His purpose is to bring them up to maturity in Christ so that he reveals the mysteries of the gospel that declare Christ. So he tells them who Christ is. He tells them his, his purpose in the letter. Then he gets to the, the meat of it, the problem, chapter 2. Here's what's going on. So what's going on in chapter 2 is that in Paul's words, they're being led astray by human tradition, elementary spirits according to this world. And he tells them to guard their doctrine, to guard to the truth of who Christ is, because these people are going to lead you astray. And he exhorts them to say, Christ is your new hope. He is your new life. He is your identity, and you don't need anything added to that or taken away from it. So when he gets to the, the, the problem and he tells them that Christ is the answer and Christ is your new life, chapter 3 is about what that life in Christ look like, looks like. He again reminds them of who Christ is at the beginning of chapter 3, but then he goes into what the Christian life should look like, the things you put to death, the things you put off, and the things you put on, and how this new life has worked out. And then he goes into specific relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children, Bosses and employees, bondservants and masters. So how does Christ uh, work out our Christian life within ourselves and then among one another? And then he, he closes with kind of final instructions and encouragements in, in chapter 4, telling them to pray, praying for the gospel to be proclaimed and doors to be opened for him, uh, telling them how to walk with outsiders. He gives a couple verses to outsiders, but this is written to the church. And then one of these parts that we can skip over, the last few verses gives all of Paul's kind of admonitions to specific people in the church and specific people who are in his ministry. 
And I'm going to love when we get to this because we learn so much about Paul's pastoral heart. We learn so much about the local church by the details that he includes. And there's so much to learn from how Paul encourages the local church by how he speaks about them by name. And so we're going to spend some, some time there. So I would encourage you, read ahead, so that way you can follow through with us as we work through. So that's kind of how this passage moves and in, in, in flows in a quick summary. But now we've got to figure out, how do we find the purpose of a book? And so as we always do, we look for repetition. As I said earlier, the thing that is repeated more than anything is Christ. And so our main theme is going to be Christ. He says in verse 311, Christ is all and in all. What you're going to see in this book is Christ is the direct object or the subject of every passage we will cover. There will not be a passage that does not relate to Christ in the book of Colossians. That is our main theme, the excellencies of Christ. But of course, that's not where Paul stops. As he speaks of being in Christ and things being to Christ and being with Christ and us being of Christ, he develops the rest of his argumentation around that. So one of the themes we're going to see repeated is mysteries revealed. Uh, look at 126. And the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. These mysteries are revealed for the sake of wisdom and understanding. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, revealing mysteries so that you may grow in wisdom and understanding. Speaking to the Greeks here, if you want wisdom and knowledge, you exalt this. There is no higher wisdom and no higher knowledge than knowing Christ. And in him, my desire and our goal in ministry is that we present you mature in Christ. So these mysteries revealed point us to wisdom and knowledge, but also there's a fullness and completeness here. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. This is repeated several times. For in him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. God is fully dwelt in the Son, the incarnate second member of the Trinity. He is full in and of himself. But look at verse 10. What does that mean for us? And you have been filled in him, who is the head of, head of all rule and authority. Paul wants us to see the fullness of Christ, the fullness in all things. And in Christ, you are filled with him. There is a fullness that comes from him. These mysteries reveal the knowledge and the fullness, which will result in the unity of the body. Another theme we see several times. Look at 3.15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. There's an emphasis on what they already have in Christ. This is who you are. Be thankful. Let his peace rule in your hearts. And know that you need nothing from outside influences. Because here's the other thing that is repeated. Here's the problem. There are false teachers. There's a false gospel that is arising in Colossae. And there are voices speaking into the lives of the Colossians saying that uh, there are human traditions that need to be added. And Paul is saying Christ is superior to any human traditions. And so this is the, the problem. This is Paul's purpose. He is writing this to let them know that there are false teachers. And the message of false teachers is always the same. Christ is not enough. The message of the false teachers is always the same. You must do more. You must add some 
you must contribute something or what Christ has done is not enough because our carnal mind cannot comprehend that everything we need for salvation, God has provided to those who believe. We can't, we can't grasp that. We can't understand, well, God, I'm important too. God, I need to do something too. We want so bad for our name to, be, to have top billing. But what he's saying here is that it is Christ. These false teachers are adding to what Christ has done, and this is a false gospel. And herein lies the problem in Colossae and the reason for Paul's writing. Because these Greeks who are obsessed with mysteries and secret knowledge are exalting all these new ideas and letting them creep into the church. And they're exalting human wisdom and traditions. And some of these traditions are Jewish traditions. We're going to talk about festivals and and, uh, Sabbath observances, these things that are good moral things, but they are making them an addition to the gospel. So in this syncretistic religious environment, some Jews, some, some Greeks, if there is not a full-blown heresy here, which some think there is, either way, there's enough of a concern for, Paphras, for Epaphras to make his way to Rome and tell Paul, hey, Paul, you've got to hear what's going on in Colossae. And this is important enough for Paul to write a letter to these people encouraging them who they are in Christ and to get them to watch out for all of the uh, false doctrines that can tend to creep into the body. And then Paul describes these things in slavery terms. If you listen to these voices, if you add to the work of Christ, they will captivate you. They will take you captive and they will make you submit to them. Do not become slaves to these false doctrines. This is important for us as we go through this book and as we think about who Christ is and what we believe. Because it's important to remember that these specific issues are related to Colossae. We don't have the same mix of cultural influences that they had, but there's always principles we can pull from them. And the saying that is popularized by Winston Churchill, that those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. We must learn from what Paul encourages the church at Colossae in the first century with, and we can apply those principles to our lives. So the Holy Spirit speaks timelessly through Paul, for us to use today because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Amen. There's a great quote for this, and I didn't know um, Alex was going to mention what he mentioned about growing up in the Catholic Church. Uh, But so uh, Bishop uh, Stephen Neal comments on this, and I think he does a great job of what's going on in in, in Colossae and what that means for us. He says this, uh, One thing is quite clear. The false teachers came in, with the claim that they would complete and perfect the simple and elementary faith to which the Colossians had been introduced by Paul and his friends. This is what false teachers always do. What you have is quite all right and a good foundation for faith. Now let us just finish it off for you, and then you will really be Christians. We have seen how this happened among the Galatians. We know Paul's reason for writing to the Galatians was the, uh, the, the issue that arose over circumcision. Those Judaizers who tried to make Christians be circumcised in order to be Christians. He goes on to say this, In our tragically divided state today, exactly the same thing can happen in our young churches. Those being rather politer than the apostle, we shall probably talk of Christians of other communions. It's a uh, UK way of saying people from other churches, they're just different than us, rather than saying false teachers. He gives some examples. In many areas where Protestant missions have been at work, Roman Catholic missionaries have later come in and set themselves to complete the imperfect Christianity of the Protestant converts. Where older churches have been at work, 
Christians of the Pentecostal groups have come in and assured the converts that unless you speak with tongues, then they can have no assurance that they have received the Holy Spirit. Speaking of his own neck of the woods, Anglicans have been known to convey the blessings of episcopacy. I want to know what those are. Uh, to those who have thought that they were getting on very nicely without them. All this is very sad, but it may help us to realize that we are not so very far from the New Testament and its problems. And that's what I, I want us to just think about for a moment. Because it's been brought to my attention, and you may notice that I talk about our culture a lot. I bring into the sermons and into application what the culture around us, around us speaks about something that the Lord lays on my heart, but it's something that I realized as I was studying and preparing for the book of Colossians that in every one of Paul's books, he does the same thing. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he talks about the cultural influences that are going on there. He talks about the cultural influences influences in Galatia and in Colossae. And so as a good pastor and as a good teacher, he recognizes this is the true gospel. This is what you focus your eyes on. But there's all this stuff on the periphery that wants to get in. All of these outside wolves that want to influence the church. And we must be clear on what can influence our church and the influences of our day. Because if Paul wrote a letter to many churches in our culture, what would be the things that he would warn us about? And we need to be clear on what those are, and we need to be prepared in every age because we know that in our culture, what are the things we're concerned about today are going to be very different a year or two or five from now. The voices of our culture at large are competing with one another and are constantly changing. So we need to be rooted in a gospel and a Christ that does not change and be able to identify the false gospels. So we must be aware of these issues and take all of our thoughts captive to Christ. Because these false teachers come in with a false gospel. The gospel is what Paul tells the writer or the, the readers in Corinth. The gospel is that God, fully God from all eternity, took on flesh, form of a servant, dwelt among us, lived perfect and sinfully, or excuse me, sinlessly, went to a cross to die for the sins of those who would put their faith in him. He would rise again on the third day, rising to new life into a glorious new existence that those who put their faith in Him would share in. He would ascend to the right hand of the Father so that He would reign over all things. He'd be Lord over all creation. And then He revealed Himself in His resurrected form to the disciples and to Paul. And Paul says, I'm the one, the least of the apostles, who declare this to you. This is the gospel that that man... The Christ of this book that Paul proclaims, he is the one who accomplished everything needed for salvation. He is the one who completely took on the wrath of God, completely became the head of a new humanity, and that in him there is no other need. Christ plus nothing equals everything. But a false gospel comes in and say, you need to dress a little better. You need to add these other things. You're not really a, a, a Christian unless you understand these doctrines. You're not a Christian unless you speak in tongues. Or you're not a Christian unless you do these, these works. Where they're saying that faith is not enough and they make a humanistic gospel. We have many humanistic gospels in our culture. 
We have many people who are saying what Christ did is not enough. Who he is is not enough. You must do more. And that is a lie. And we need to spot those and we need to recognize those and we need to guard against those within our fellowship. And so we need to ask ourselves, and we've all been a part of this, we've all, we've all seen it, we all should be on guard against it. How often do human traditions, the elementary spirits according to this world, creep into the church? How often do we see the muddied waters of the Gospels and so many people who are preaching different messages all over the world? How many philosophical Greek ideas come into the church? There's a new higher way of thinking. I've got this new perspective on something, and I'm going to set the Bible on its head because I know more than what Scripture says. I can interpret it in a way that no one else can. It's a very Greek way of looking at the Scriptures. about a very... Jewish way of looking at the scriptures. What about a moralistic influence within the church? Well, we have to stop drinking and dancing and, and, and smoking and all these, these, these things, or we're not really Christians, imposing them upon scripture. And I want to ask you, can you spot a man-centered gospel? Can you spot the human traditions of this world? When you go about your, your daily life and the things that you affirm within our culture, the things that you promote on social media, because we see them, Do you know a false gospel? Do you know that as a Christian, when you proclaim Christ out of one side of your mouth and then exalt celebrity and and uplift people on the other side of your mouth, you are muddying the waters of the gospel and you are presenting another good news to the world? Do you know what you have in Christ? Do you know that in him is all the excellencies, all the sufficiencies? Are you in Christ? Or are you just sitting here because it seems like a good thing to do on Sunday morning. Maybe you think of yourself as a Christian, but Christ never enters your mind, never a- enters your heart, uh, never comes out of, out of your mouth. But you just go through the motions and, and, and sit here, a dead person, hearing us speak about life. Are you in Christ? That's what we're going to get to in the opening of this letter. So, yes, we are going to get to the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to verse 1. So what can this greeting teach us? Uh, this is kind of a standard Greco-Roman letter. And this is the, the, the common format that it would um, open with an introduction and credentials. Hello, my name is Paul. This is who I am. We don't write letters like that, but that's how they, they wrote them then. Uh, it would address the audience. Here's who I'm writing to. And there'd be some kind of greeting, some kind of salutation, uh, grace and peace, which is uniquely Christian, uh, but the secular world would have had their own versions of that. Then you'd give the... Um, meat of the letter, and then you'd give the uh, final greeting, kind of final exhortation at the end. So I, w- I want to walk through this, because what can we learn from two little verses that, that normally, if we're honest, when we're reading a letter like this, we, we read really quickly through the first two verses. Oh, this is just an introduction. This is just to whom it may concern. But aha, there's so much more here. So Paul, an apostle, this is who the letter is from. So an apostle is a sent one who is sent for a particular purpose from a particular person, and this is not a light thing. So in our culture, people throw around the term apostle. If you have not heard that, you're good for you. Um, but we need to know what is an apostle. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 2. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Quick question. Someone comes to you and says, I'm an apostle. Have you seen Jesus our Lord? Have you seen the resurrected Christ? So Paul says it takes to be an apostle. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Apostle will have fruit, verse 2. 
If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The apostles are sent from Christ with a mission, and there will be fruit. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and the fact that these wretched Corinthians actually look to Christ is a seal of Paul's apostleship. He goes on in the end of the book in chapter 15. Like I mentioned earlier, the gospel that Paul uh, declares. Last of all, talking about Christ uh, revealing himself to his disciples, last of all, as to one untimely born, speaking about himself, he also appeared to me. For I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I have persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul does not take his apostleship lightly. And so as he writes, he writes with an authority. He writes with one who has been sent from Christ, commissioned by Christ, with a message to the Gentiles. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I'm going to get to Christ Jesus in a minute. By the will of God. Now we know in a general sense, all things are according to God's will. But no one appoints themselves to be an apostle. No one says, I'm going to be an apostle today. It is by the will of God. He speaks in a very specific manner here. This is in a very direct way. God has appointed me by his will for this office, for this purpose. This is a ministry of God, and this is seamless with Christ. The two things that are repeated in this, God and Christ. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Writing to the saints who are in Christ Jesus. This is important. Who Paul is is determined by Christ. Who he writes to is determined by Christ. He is writing from Christ to Christ. The Christ who has called him as an apostle, the Christ who has called them out of darkness into marvelous light. From sender in Christ to recipient in Christ, the the content of this letter cannot be understood apart from Christ. If you are not in Christ, you cannot understand this the way it's meant to. It may be human words, it may be language you understand, but you might as well be reading hieroglyphics. Because without Christ, this letter is not to you, without eyes to see. This is from Paul, who is called by Christ, to a church who is set apart by Christ. This is a family conversation. So even in the greeting, Paul lets us know that this is from Christ to Christ. And all who bear the name of him read this and will bear fruit. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy, my namesake. Timo Theos, honoring God. He is called in 1 Timothy, he's called my true child. 2 Timothy, he's called my beloved child. He wrote with Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians and in um, Philippians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians and in Philemon. He is Paul's child in the faith. He visits Paul in prison. He helps Paul to write these, these letters and deliver these letters. He's not an apostle, though. He hangs around with with, with apostles, but he's our brother. And I love that Timothy is a perfect picture of discipleship. Because he is someone that Paul trains up. That Paul raises him and and, uh, pours into him, and then he joins him as a co-laborer in ministry. Paul and Timothy, we see this very often. And I got really wise advice as a young Christian. That in every season of our lives, we should always have a Paul, and we should always have a Timothy. We should always have an older, seasoned Christian who is pouring into us and a younger Christian who we are pulling along. And that means every one of you. If you've been a Christian for 10 minutes, there's a Christian who's been, someone who's been a Christian for five minutes, pull them along with you. And we see this exemplified in Paul. 
that even if Paul writes on the authority of an apostle, and that would be enough, Paul is not alone. Paul has his brothers with him, and as we'll see at the end of the letter, he's got a lot more brothers that are with him. So he writes, Paul and Timothy write to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Saints and faithful brothers. Um, the word for faithful here, pistos, it, depending on whether you use it as a verb or a noun, it means faithful or believer. So uh, either way, the, the, the sense is here that the saints, there's something passive in a saint. So what I mean by passive is there's something that is done to you. You are a saint because God has set you apart. God has made you one. God gave you his righteousness. He made you holy through Christ. There is a passive identity in saints. But in those who are faithful and those who are believers, that's the active role we play. Our faith is truly our own. Our belief is truly our own. So at the same time, the saints in Eph- uh, uh, Colossae, the church in Colossae, they are saints, passively not of themselves, God works on them, but actively their faith and belief is true in him. And so, like Colossae, so are we. We are set apart by God. We are holy in Christ Jesus. We also actively believe in a faith that is truly our own, so that we are these two things together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and fellow brothers in Christ at Colossae. He tells them who he is, who they are, and it is completely dependent on Christ. And then where they are in Colossae. So the other part that you'll see in the introduction to these letters is the greeting, the salutation. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Again, something that rolls off the tongue is easy to say. Sounds like something you'll hear in a Catholic Mass or something. But why is this such a common Christian greeting? Why are these terms so linked together? I want to tell you why. Grace is the loving kindness and mercy of God. It is His sovereign free gift. Nothing we can do to earn it. Nothing we can add to it. A gift that only comes from God. The grace that God gives to sinners is undeserved. And so He speaks to undeserving people. Grace to you. The grace that only comes from God to you. And grace is the only source of peace. Peace is a Jewish concept. It does not mean lack of war like we've been trained to think. In the Jewish understanding, it means completeness. It means fullness. Grace to you and peace to you. Grace which brings peace. It is only from the grace of God who forgives sinners that we can have peace, that we can be complete. There is completeness in Christ, and that comes from God. You see how Paul so seamlessly works back and forth between in Christ from God, in Christ from God. There is no distinction in, in, in Paul's mind. He gives glory to God while exalting and pointing to the person and work of Christ. And what a wonderful Christian blessing and encouragement this is. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. These words should be amazing to us because I know how many times I've talked with you when you've lost family members, when you're struggling, when you're sick, when you're wrestling with, with your job. And when we talk and point to who Christ is, and you're able to praise him in that time, that is the peace that passes understanding. And that is the peace that the world cannot understand. And that is the peace that only comes from God's grace in our lives. That is the only peace that, as Alex said earlier, it is not a cliche. I am a sinner saved by grace. I have received mercy when I deserve wrath. 
and that brings peace. This is what Paul wants them to know from the jump, from the very beginning. Grace and peace to you because you are in Christ. And that should set the tone for everything else. So that was verses 1 and 2. Next week, verses 3 and 4. No. Uh, next week will be in a few more, 3 to 8. So I hope you're as excited about Colossians as I am. I just want to leave you with a couple notes. In conclusion, the term in Christian circles, Christ-centered, is thrown around a lot. There's Christ-centered books. There's Christ-centered teaching. There's nothing bad to say there. This is a good thing, as it should be. But make sure it's not just lip service. That make sure that as in the book of Colossians, Christ is the subject and object of our speech, of our lives, of our teaching, of our church. That what we do is truly Christ-centered. Not just wearing the name. Not just holding on to what we like about Jesus, the good teacher and healer, but Christ, the reigning king the Lord of all creation, the creator of all things. Let our lives be Christ-centered and never lose the awe and wonder of the excellencies of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is all things excellent and good. And if you, and I encourage you to be here through the book of Colossians, but if you leave the book of Colossians and you don't see the excellencies of Christ, you are dead. Because the excellencies of Christ are declared. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is Lord over all creation. He is the prophet of prophets, the king of kings, the high priest. We need to make sure that we declare his excellencies boldly. But also there's a warning. We need to make sure that we are aware of those voices that may influence us. We need to examine ourselves. Am I listening to scripture? Am I looking to Christ or am I looking to human traditions? Because if you're thinking that's not me, every one of us in this room is influenced by human traditions. And if you say you're not, you're a liar. What are the human traditions, what are the elementary spirits of this world that tug at your heart? What are the things that you wrestle with to put before Christ in the excellencies of your heart and mind? We want to make sure we guard those together. We want to make sure that we believe in the true gospel and not a false gospel that directly or indirectly takes away from or adds to the completeness that we have in Christ. And it is in Him, and only in Him, that we have this amazing grace and unending peace. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, You are high and lifted up. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But yet You communicate to us. Yet You reveal Yourself to us. Yet you write scripture so that we might know you and that we might grow in you. And my prayer for this body, for the saints in this room, is that we grow into maturity in Christ. That we take every thought captive unto him. Know that he is in all and through and, and all. That all things are to him and through him and for him. For the glory of God the Father. That by the power of his spirit, we can begin to understand who he is and that we would declare his excellencies and that we would be a people marked by Christ. Lord, please guard us against false doctrines. Please guard us against false gospels that try to add to the person or work of Christ or take away from the person or work of Christ. Let us be rooted in him. Let us be Christ-centered in the purest sense of the term. 
Let us be people who praise you for your grace and your mercy towards sinners like us and rest in the peace and completeness that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is in his name I pray. Amen.